Welcome to Interplay, Conversations in Music. This is Michael Shapiro speaking to you from Chappaqua, New York, and I have a very special guest on today, Norman Lebrecht from London. Hello, Norman. Hi, Michael. How are you? I'm wonderful, and you look terrific. You really do. I just want to tell some people about Norman, who I've known now for a good, I don't know, 15 years or so. We met at a conference, I think. Mm -hmm. But we also actually know each other longer than that, because I think I know you for 25 years. I wrote The Jewish 100 in in the mid-'90s, which was a bar bet with uh, the owner of Carroll Publishing. And very Mm -hmm. soon thereafter, I read The Maestro Myth. And I think you had one other book with Carroll Publishing at the time for American representation about uh, perhaps Who Killed Classical Music or something like that. or the I forget the other one. But we did speak then, mm-hmm. and uh, we, we, we found that we had a lot in common, music and religion and uh, thought. And uh, to tell folks about Norman Lebrecht, um, there's some very wonderful things that have happened to you. I will tell you, when you wrote the Song of Names, which was extremely moving to me for many, many reasons, I was very, very, very pleased to read it, and my uh, my lady Marjorie also read it, and she was very moved by it. It hit all of our spots, as it were, and it was made into what they used to call a major motion picture, starring uh, Tim Roth and Clive Owen. <laughs> and you have another book, uh, as well, a, a, a The Game of Opposites, your other novel. I did not know you as a novelist when I first started reading your books, and I've read almost everything. Um, the Maestro Myth, Who Killed Classical Music, Why Mahler, which I took very deeply. And you write as a journalist all over the place, Wall Street Journal, the, the Evening Standard in London. You've got the wonderful slip disc blog, I suppose they call it these days, which I read all the time. And you live in London. But I did not know until I read your background today that you went to a rabbinic college originally. Is that correct? I've I've lived lived several lives. Um, I try to cram them into this one container. But there's a lot of them. Yeah, when I when I was now to rabbinical college, and uh, not in order to become a rabbi, but in order to immerse myself in Talmudic learning. It's been a a strand of my life. It's not ever something that I thought I would use in any way professionally, until about um, five years ago. I started writing my latest book, which is Genius and Anxiety. Um, and I, it, you know, you mentioned that I've done a lot of journalism. Basically, when I turned sixty, Michael, I decided I'm done with journalism. You know, I've done this for forty years, and it's been fun and it's great, and it's now no longer fun and it's not even well remunerated. So, just think about ways of communicating, which is broadcasting and um, slip disc, and the books that I want to write. And and the last one that I wrote was was this one, which is called Genius and Anxiety, um, and which was there to answer um, a question that had preoccupied me all my life, which was this. Between the middle of the 19th and 20th centuries, the most productive period in human history, about three dozen individuals changed our perception of the universe, changed the way that we live our lives. I mean, transportation, uh, if you said I was transported in 1840, you meant uh, probably you were on a horse and cart uh, by 
1940, you were in a car, you were in a plane, you were in a train, you were, you know. So uh, this is the most productive period in, in, in human history. About three dozen individuals are responsible for most of the changes, and half of those are Jews. How's that possible? During that period, the Jews amounted to about 0.002% of world population. How is it possible that such a tiny minority could make such a phenomenal um, transformational contribution to human society in that time. And so that became um, the theme of this latest book, Genius and Anxiety. And through it, um, I also reverted to certain ideas within Talmudic study, to certain aspects of Talmudic methodology, because it, it, it occurred to me that if Jews were making these, these quantum leaps into the unseen and the unknown, there might be something connective about it, not necessarily directly that they were using Talmudic method, but that there is a collective cultural unconscious that simmers somewhere beneath their thinking that can help us to understand why they paid, played such a disproportionate role. So I'm sorry, very, very long answer to your question as to why I went to rabbinic college when I was 16, but it, these things all come together somehow in life, don't you find? I think so. I'm, I'm very curious about um, the Middle Ages first, or the Dark Ages. Mm. There was a time, I don't think Jews are any more in, or less intelligent than anybody else. I think it's racism to say that certain groups have no intelligence or should be only doing manual labor, which is a major problem in the America that I live in now, the racism that we're trying to stamp out. But I do remember what, reading one thing in one book about Judaism in the, the Dark Ages, that the best minds, many of the best minds in the Christian community went into the monasteries. And the power of literacy was restricted really to the clergy. Not even some of the royalty could read. But in those little villages, the shtetls of Eastern Europe or wherever we were, <laughs> one of the Sephardim areas, reading was something that was widely followed. And you had the rabbis with great amounts of children and generations, you see. <coughs> Pardon me where I'm going. Do you think that striving for literacy and the word has had that impact on us? Um, to a degree. Um, Firstly, uh, I'm with you. I, I, it's, it's nothing to do with DNA. It's nothing to do with Jewish exceptionalism. It's nothing to do with, with, with a whole load of other factors that might be particular or peculiar to Jews. Yes, it has something to do with an idea of learning. But the idea of learning was not necessarily the same as the practice of learning. There was an enormous amount of illiteracy in the Pale of Settlement where most Jews lived in, in, in Eastern Europe. Um, the whole of the Hasidic movement, which was a revolutionary anti-intellectual movement, arose in order to appeal to the vast unlettered masses of Jews who had no access to God because they couldn't read the text. So one, one can't make a generalization about Jews and literacy and Jews and love of books and so forth, but there is an aspiration there. There's always an aspiration in Jewish culture and Jewish civilization to know more, to learn more, to um, um, 
to raise your children to be intellectually superior to yourself. But that's that's not uniquely um, that's not uniquely a Jewish thing. I think it was your second president, John Adams, who said, uh, "I was a soldier in order that my son could be a farmer, in order that his son." could be a professor in order that his son could be a poet. I'm curious about uh, having been, being someone who's read most of your books with great mm -hmm. delight. And as I mentioned, the resonance particularly of Song of Names, which I took very emotionally, I must tell you, because it mm -hmm. touches directly on what I'm doing as a creative artist, as a composer. Mm -hmm. Um. Genius Anxiety, How Jews Changed the World, 1847, Felix Mendelssohn, to 1947, David Ben-Gurion, <laughs> Establishment of the State of Israel. As you know, I wrote The Jewish 100 in the mid-90s, which was an international bestseller. It's in eight languages, but it was, a, it was a, what I call a pop book. Separate sections. It was a bar bet with the owner of Carroll Man Management Publishing at the time. And individual chapters on the influence of those people throughout history on the world. But your book is very different. And I loved how you ranged from one kind of skill or influence to the other. I'm curious, and the chapters all differ, of course. You know, you can have a chapter talking about Hollywood and another chapter talking about Walter Benjamin. It's quite the spread. But when you are organizing it and thinking about it, because it has deep thought behind it, describe the process, because to me that's fascinating. Um, the most important part of the process was choosing the tense. I write it in the present continuous. I struggled with it until I changed the tense from past to present continuous. And present continuous, of course, is the, is the tense of biblical literature. There, there is no past, present, and future in the Bible. It is all written in present continuous. And the whole exegesis is founded upon the idea that humanity's role is to be a partner in God's continuing creation. So that's the first most, uh, the, the, the first key decision in, in doing it. Secondly, choosing the dates. Um, the obvious dates would have been 1848 to 1948. Everybody goes with 1848, the year of revolutions, and then 1948, foundation of the state of Israel. And I rejected both of those. Firstly, because nothing came out of the 1848 revolutions apart from Wagner. And, you know, nobody, nobody, nobody made a career out of 1848. Um, 1847, now that's interesting, because that's the death of Felix Mendelssohn, who is the first Jew to make uh, an, an appreciable impact on uh, Western European civilization, certainly on music. Uh, it is the year that Heinrich Heine, the first, uh, the second Jewish domain impact on Western European civilization, transforming the German language, the year that Heine became a permanent invalid until his death. It's the year that Karl Marx writes the, who is Heine's second cousin, writes the Communist Manifesto. And it's the year that Benjamin Disraeli becomes effectively head of the opposition party in the House of Commons. So that seems to me a breakthrough year for Jews within Western society. And then 1947, I didn't want to deal with the actual birth of the state of Israel because there's an enormous amount of historiography arguing, well, this is the end of history. This is something that this is where this is where the Jewish diaspora ended and something new began. And it's it's not it's not a new chapter, it's a new book. And I I, I didn't want to get into that. But 1847 is fascinating. 
1947 is fascinating. It gave me an opportunity to deal with the moment when New York became the center of the universe culturally. It came about by accident. And it's not just Bernstein, Copeland, Felton, the others, but it, it's you know, the whole artistic ferment. Those guys were also Jewish. The whole balletic ferment. New York suddenly replaced Berlin, Paris, London for a period, it, and it was, only, it was only a brief period. And I wanted to look at that period and the interaction of those individuals and the sense in which their Jewishness um, uh, integrated within this cultural ferment and explosion. Um, and then I wanted to do something about this idea of history going both forwards and backwards at the same time, because on the very day that the League of Nations voted to create a Jewish state in Palestine, voted to end a thousand years of diaspora, that self-same day, a man in Jerusalem called Sukhanik got a call and said, if you can get yourself down to Bethlehem, you are actually going to find a different window into the history of the I love that section. Yigalia Dane's father. I loved yeah. it. And, I mean, for it, to be, to, for it to be that day, that Saturday, and for it to be the most dangerous journey that ever has take, ever taken because there is total insurrection of the Arabs yeah. in Palestine and the Jews in Palestine, and they're shooting right. up buses, and nobody is safe. And he goes down to Bethlehem, and he buys the first three of Dead Sea Scrolls, which show us that many of the things that we've taken for granted, that the texts of, of, of scriptures are fixed, actually have to be questioned because there were plural texts, there were alternative texts, there were ways in which texts were edited. And so as history goes forward towards a, the formation of a Jewish state and a new Jewish independence, it also goes backwards to re-examine the origins and the question of whether we are who we actually thought we are, who they thought we are at school, maybe we're not. So I that's, yeah, I, I like to leave it on that open question. I would like to talk to you about Felix Mendelssohn, who to me is a fascinating character. Mm. Grandfather Moses Mendelssohn, who's a foundational figure in, mm -hmm. Juda in Judaism, especially in the reform movement, but everything else about him. He's a fascinating guy. And then his son, the banker. Mm -hmm. And then his grandson and his granddaughter, these incredible musicians, as well as Felix being having tremendous talent as a draftsman in art, which is something people don't realize about him. You mentioned beautifully in the book how there is in his music often, even in the Reformation Symphony, the Jewish quotations, which is just fantastic for me because my music is infused with my Jewish background. There's no question about it. And for anyone to not realize that is just not listening. But Mendelssohn seems to me as such a divided figure. And I wonder, for the Jewish person, not only in the diaspora, but also in Israel now with the whole Arab-Israeli conflict, can we ever resolve any of this, or should we even bother? Now, I, I will add one thing. Having gone to see the lagers in Germany... The, I was with Dachau, which is like a Disney production these days, with my daughter. Um, I felt, when I was there, uh, great outrage, uh, vicious outrage, over the fact that I have no cousins. You know, very few, 75, we think, murdered in Poland. Um, and 
I mean, you know, I'm trying to teach my 20-year-old at the time, 18-year-old at the time about it, and she was very affected. So the thought is for you, the man of the diaspora, a man, you were born in, in England, in, in Great Britain, yep. am I right? England. But But yep. you spent a, a good amount of time in Israel, and I know mm -hmm. you've, you're an international person. I can ask myself the same question, but I'm, I want to ask it of you. Why, why Mala? Why not Israel for you? Why, why the, why Great Britain? Why the United Kingdom? Whoa, um, these are so many questions. Let me just let me just pose the Mendelssohn question first, or address Mendelssohn question first, because Mendelssohn is a man in denial. Mendelssohn at no time admits he's a Jew. There is only one known comment, one known published comment of Mendelssohn in which he refers to himself to himself as being of Jewish origin. Yes. And, but we hear in the music, there are certain phrases in the music um, that we know are Jewish. We know in the Resurrection Symphony, which, which, which you mentioned, suddenly you come into da 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 which, you know, that's what they play on El Al flights as they land in Israel. That's right. They ain't playing Mendelssohn, that's for sure. Mendelssohn is so ferociously divided against himself, so intent on, on covering up his Jewishness, on not so much denying it, but burying it. And then I came across this unpublished letter of his, which he writes to his mother, comes to London in 1831, I think it is. They ask him where he wants to go. The first place he wants to go is to the House of Commons, because they are debating what is known as the Jew Bill. The Jew Bill is about the emancipation of Jews, and the granting of votes to the Jews. And he goes both as an act of solidarity, he says to his mother in a letter, but um, to, uh, in some way or other, to lend his silent vote to those who are about to give Jews freedom, a freedom in England that they'd never had in Germany. And the letter he writes to his mother is riddled with Yiddish phrases, Yiddish phrases and Hebrew words from Mendelssohn who deny he was ever Jewish. There's extraordinary tension in Mendelssohn. When you know that, you can then open him up and see, whoa, who is this person? He's much more complex than he knows, oh, yes. much more complex than we know. And the music really demands an awful lot more examination to see what's going on behind it. Him and his sister Fanny also incredibly fascinating but i, I mean that's that's that, that's that's another conversation michael because they are they are they're really really immense figures oh but um, yeah, yes go ahead you know my, my my own choices i went to israel when i was 16 i stayed there for seven years i'm fluent in hebrew i speak yiddish i have a little bit of arabic um I, 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 and i came back to england um at the time i i wasn't sure where i was going to settle but coming back to it, and, and I lived in the States for a while as well, and I've traveled a lot, but I, I you know, I've learned to French and German, have just, um, so I feel at home in many places, but England always seemed to me a tolerant society, um, one where you could be yourself without having to look over your shoulders or without having to, to declare yourself as being this thing or another. Um, and then over the past five years, while I was writing this book, that changed. And suddenly I became aware of an anti-Semitism that I'd never felt in my lifetime. I knew that 
my father, who was born in London in 1903, I knew that my father experienced anti-Semitism, but I didn't know anyone in my generation who'd felt prejudiced by it. And suddenly there it was on the screen in front of me, on the street in front of me. And I was having to look at myself, not just as an English person, but as a Jewish person and as an English Jew, and to address all of those things in terms of my identity, my family, where I want to spend the rest of my life. And so these, these have been quite agonizing years, happily, over the last six months. The tide has turned. We feel a little more secure. We feel a little, little less embattled. Um, but on New Year's Eve, um, there were daubings on one of the synagogues that I go to. And that felt like, you know, it felt like a, a physical assault. And uh, these, these, these are things I'm having to grapple with um, and to which there is no immediate and obvious answer. And you, you were fa facing the same thing here, as you know. Mm. Um, yeah, absolutely. With absolutely. Pittsburgh and everything else. But Pittsburgh is just, you know, yes. one horrible example. Look, what happened to the, uh, the black community in that church down in Charleston was identical to what happened to the Jewish observers uh, in Pittsburgh. And a yes. guest chazan, cantor yes. of the Pittsburgh yes. temple, is a very dear friend of mine. She knew the men who were killed. This is very personal stuff. I once met an African-born basketball player who, uh, very famous, mm. seven-footer, and he, he's extremely proud. They called him the lion. And there was nothing in here of any ambiguity of slavery because that's not his background. But I do know professional basketball players, mm -hmm. many in New York, who have been friends, and they carry the burden of coming from families that two, or th you know, three or four generations ago were slaves. Something that mm -hmm. Jewish people are very sensitive to. There are pictures of um, Rabbi Heschel and others carrying a Torah surrounded with, surrounding Martin Luther King. Yes. It, it's understandable yes. why the, the early presidents of the and NAACP. The oh, are you really? Then you know. Mm. King was a friend of my family, uh, yeah. my, my cousin. And the whole thing, it, it, the connection is very tight. Yes, I agree with you that the UK mm. and uh, the United States are very, have common issues in this. Um, we're an enormous society of many countries in one in the United States, as we're showing right now. But when you were writing Genius and Anxiety, How Jews Changed the World, 1847 to 1947, these thoughts had to be percolating in you. Because unlike, you know, The Jewish 100, which was a book just showing influence, and for a composer to write a book is a crazy thing to start with. But for you as a, as a writer who deeply thinks about these issues, they're your ethos, they're your part of you. I mean, I see that in the novels and the creative work you've done. You know, and also the nonfiction mm -hmm. works. I mean, I read it and I feel it. When you were talking about the ambiguity of each of these people, I don't think in our culture, until the arrival of Israel and the Sabras and the confidence that they have, did we come to a point where we say, we have an army, we've got the weapons, we'll defend ourselves. But apart from that, in, in, in aesthetics, I should say, 
I always felt that, yes, you write about Leonard Bernstein's conflicts in himself. But the wonderful thing about Lenny was he never denied or who he was. And he spewed out at whoever wanted to hear it. And I, I got spewed at too. So do you think about this, the anxiety aspect? You know, you talk about genius. Well, it's clear. You name the geniuses. And you name also very common people as well in some of the chapters. But the anxiety element, yes, you've been anxious. Yes, I've been anxious. Yes, it's in my music. Yes, it's in your writing. Yes, it's in your creativity and your soul. But can we get to the point, or, or should we, I think, march toward the point where we're feeling like those sabras, like those Israelis who don't take it from anyone, a lot of them? You must have thought of this when you're writing it. It's, it that's, it's a really important question, Michael. Um, I, I, I wouldn't pin it solely on the sabras or on Len Bernstein. You find it in Heine. And Heine is at one moment a completely free and out and proud Jew who writes this immense ode to the glory of the Jewish Sabbath. You couldn't be more proud than that. And in, in the next poem, he's attacking the Jews as being this, that, and the other. Um, so the, the, the ambivalence is there, but the pride, the pride is always there. Um, Lenny was always out and proud in everything that he did, and he never tried to prettify himself or his Jewishness. Take me as I am. It, 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 was, it, it was in many ways, in some ways, intolerable. Um, <laughs> the, um, the things that we are, the things that we became, when I was trying to explain why it is the Jews made such a contribution in this so important period, it occurred to me that the anxiety is the internal combustion engine. The genius is there, it's visible on the outside. It has these marvelous fins and it's shiny and you can see, and it's Einstein. My God, it is Einstein. But the anxiety is the thing that makes Einstein write those, write those four papers in three months in the spring of 1905, like, like a rocket. Phenomenal. Because somewhere within his consciousness, is the thought, this may not last long. There may be the wave of anti-Semitism, there may be the next physical attacks, there may be the next pogroms, there may be the next expulsion, there may be the next Holocaust. Everyone, every single one of the people that I write about has in their personal unconscious the idea of Jewish vulnerability. That is the anxiety. And it is disastrous for some of them because Freud, in so many of his conclusions, was so terribly wrong. He actually killed a patient in one of his crackpot experiments early on. And he was so wrong because he had to write and think so fast. If he'd had the leisure, if he'd had the professorship that would have been his if he'd been a Gentile, if he'd had the, the, the comfort and the status to think slowly, reasonably, rationally, um, and, and, and walk as confident and gentle gentleman of Vienna through the Prater and come out with his conclusions in his own good time, then more of Freud would survive today than actually does. The, the vast part of it, the vast bulk of it has been discredited, except for the fact that Freud taught us two simple principles that, that, that most human misery arises from sexual difficulties, sexual confusion. 
and that we have within ourselves the ability to heal ourselves through this talking cure that he created through self-analysis well, uh, yeah, and the auto-analysis yeah. the Freud brain that auto-analysis is is quite a has its origins in Jewish thought going back a really long way so think of the think of the anxiety as the rocket propeller well, Genius and Anxiety, I have to say, was a wonderful book, and I recommend it to everyone who watches this. And Jews changed the world. I think somebody wrote that Jews remade the world. I hope that's true. Uh, this search to put the broken shards together, what we call tikkun olam, continues. And I do believe, uh, Norman, mm -hmm. that you've done the role of a tzaddik in this, a holy person, Ooh. in that... Well, let me say why. Because by identifying this, these issues and in the poetic way you do has presented one other attempt by an artist to uh, bring together those shards that broke when the world was first created. Thank you, Norman Lebrecht, for this wonderful conversation. Um, we've discussed many, many things, and I so look forward to your next book, I thank Norman for being on the program. This is Interplay, Conversations and Music with your host, Michael Shapiro. Thank you. Thanks so much, Michael. It's been a great pleasure.